on the nine marks page, and we are going to be on number four. Greg, can you read us number four? Yeah. Let me turn yours on, Jerry. Now I'm good. All right. Uh, Number four, a biblical understanding of conversion. When we have a biblical understanding of the gospel, we must then also have a proper understanding of conversion. Conversion is a new birth from death to life and is a work of God. It is not merely a change of attitude or a change of affection, but a change of nature. Conversion does not need to be an exciting emotional experience, but does need to produce fruit to be judged a true conversion. Scott, you want to say a word about biblical conversion? Yeah, I mean, uh, I would say that Mark and I both had false professions of faith, right? We both said the sinner's prayer, uh, I don't know how many times, between the two of us, probably oh, over 100 times. Add up probably. to a big number. I mean, every time somebody presented the gospel anywhere and did it, I, I said the sinner's prayer. And that, that basically, that was my conversion was based on that. Well, I didn't have, at least, it did, I'm sure my dad taught it, but I just didn't, didn't take root in me. I was just thinking, I remember mom told us, like, she doesn't know when she became a Christian. She grew up a missionary. And I was just like, she's not a Christian. She doesn't pray the sinner's prayer. That's what I thought as a kid. My understanding was so wrong, like, so wrong. But biblical understanding of conversion, it's, it's a change. It's a, it's a new, you're a new creature in Christ. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Bible is boring and dull. Jesus is boring and dull. You're blind to the glory of Jesus. That is what it means to be dead in sin. And then when, when, conver- when genuine conversion happens, it's, it's Sam reading the Gospel of Luke for the first time. Mm-hmm. You see the glory of Jesus. I mean, when I became a Christian, it was just like, this Bible became radiant. I was just like, how have I neglected this, this, this book? So, because now I had new eyes to see. Everything was radiant. Everything was amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's, that's a biblical understanding of conversion. Is, it's a ch- change in nature. It's, you're, you're seeing the glory of Jesus. He is glorious, beautiful. You want to know more about the Bible and the things of God. I mean, that, that's an understanding of conversion. Yeah, you can talk a month of Sundays on John 3 on the, uh, you know, on the new birth, Ephesians 2. We need Chronicler to talk about 1 to 10, about just with due to God's love and mercy, he made us alive. While we were dead in our transgressions and sins, he made us alive. That, that's conversion. And so Acts 13, 48, those who were appointed believed. It wasn't those who believed were appointed to eternal life. God, from the beginning of time, foreknown, predestined, called, and then justified, and we can use several terms for this, redeemed, we're justified, we're um, reborn, uh, there's regeneration, there's all of these things, but they all point to a change that happens, so then we believe. And that's the, uh, you know, that's the beauty of this, it's just, it's so thrilling. And I love this last part, it, there's a need to produce fruit to be judged a true um, conversion. True conversion will always produce, Scott said it, you are a new creation in Christ. There is no way that we're going to act the same now that the Holy Spirit's living in us because he convicts us, he encourages us to to walk by the word, and uh, if someone doesn't change, we've got to say, wait a second here, was that true conversion? I was going to read uh, the passage where Scott was referencing. Uh, it's Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5. I want to read verses 16 through the first part of verse 18. Um, and it, I think it just gives a very good f- biblical foundation to what, what we're hearing. Um, I'll give you all a sec to, to turn there. Um, but in verse 16, he says, From now on then, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus 
no longer. Meaning before they became believers, before they were converted, you know, they had a particular way they viewed Jesus. Um, they knew about him. They had ideas about him, um, but they weren't the right ones. Okay. And then something happened and now they, they it's the same Jesus, but their whole view, understanding, approach, uh, feeling about Jesus, it's all different. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. First part of verse 18, all this is from God. What's mm. the this? It's regarding Jesus differently and being a new creation. Um, and that's exactly what, what's happening here. Yeah, there is a change of attitude. Yes, there's a change of, of affection, but it, that comes from somewhere. God's made us new inside. That doesn't mean we're physically new. We still await our resurrection bodies. Like that's the thing we long for because then we know there'll be no more struggle with sin or anything like that. But something has fundamentally changed in us. Again, we're not perfect. Uh, we still stumble, like we said, but we can never look at Jesus the same. We can never think about Jesus the same. We can never uh, respond to Jesus the same because God, God has um, opened up what the, the Bible calls the eyes of our hearts, the ears of our hearts, um, you know, the understanding of our hearts. Like there's two ways we see, two ways we hear. We see with physical eyes, we hear with physical ears. We also see with our heart eyes and our heart ears. The Bible has categories for that. And what happens when we're converted, all of a sudden, the eyes of our heart are awakened to the glory and beauty of Jesus. Our ears are open to hear his voice uh, calling through the word, through the gospel, um, and we can never be the same. Like, we, we won't be perfect, but we'll never be the same. What's the old, the old saying? I thank God that I'm not what I was, and I know I'm not, or I know I'm not what I, I one day will be, but I thank God that I'm not what I was, or something mm -hmm. like that. Um, you can never be the same once conversion happens. Like, it, it's, it's a fundamental change that affects the entire course of life from that moment on. And we, we don't believe that you can lose your salvation. Yeah. We believe that people can have what looks like a conversion, like you and I had what we thought was a conversion, and then you can wander away from the Lord and end up not being a believer. <clears throat> but we would say you were never a believer the whole time. Just to give one verse to back that up, 1 John 2, 19. Does that sound right, Jerry? Is it 18? 19, where they left. Yeah, yeah. They, they went out from us. This is talking about people who left the faith. They went mm -hmm. out from us, for they were not of us. For had they been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. In other words, mm -hmm. had they been real believers, they would have stayed. But the fact that they left the faith proves that they never really were of us. They were never mm -hmm. truly believers. So we can have apparent conversions, false conversions that then end in apostasy or falling away. But genuine conversion is a permanent thing. True, a true new nature is an enduring thing. I mean, just say, what a joyful thing. I mean, we all know that. I mean, you see someone genuinely converted. Oh, it's the, best the most joyful thing. The I remember best. Grant Crane when he became a Christian. Oh. You, told, you called oh. me late at night saying, Grant has shared their discussion group because it wasn't in mine. And you were so excited about Grant. I couldn't wait to talk to him. It was at your ordination party at your house. And I remember talking to him in the line. And it was like, this is a new mm -hmm. creature in Christ. I could tell instantaneously talking to Grant that first conversation. This guy's been born again. I remember Thomas mm -hmm. Bailey, when he came to, just came to our church, he'd just become a Christian. He's talking about his sin. He's talking about hell. He knew he deserved God's wrath and the cross. And like, you just, like Zach Page just said, immediately you are attached to this guy. He's a brother in Christ. Like instantaneously, genuine conversion, like, Oh, I mean, just it's, it, it is such a wonderful thing and tre tremendous thing. The, yeah. I just I read Spurgeon's conversion like once a month. It's just I I love it. And Spurgeon at the end of his conversion story, oh man, it's so powerful. Spurgeon after five years of being in the darkness, not being converted, knowing he was lost, knowing he was going to hell, he's at that little church service. He's converted. He goes home and he said, 
between half past 10 that morning and half past 12 when I got home, he said, when I walked into my house, he said, my whole family knew something dramatic had happened to me, something marvelous had happened to me. And he said, I told them that the firstborn son had found the Savior. And he said, there was joy in the house that day that goes beyond. He said, it makes all the joys of this life uh, look like husks and ashes compared to the joy of seeing that the firstborn son had become a believer. I mean, just... That's what you want. That's what you want. You want the people you know and love, your children, those you care about, your neighbors, those around you, to know that they've found the Savior. It makes the joys of everything else we look to insignificant in comparison to the joy. He said that the joy in that house that day was, he said, absolutely unsurpassed. Now, Miss Dorothy, when you called that week after Miss Dorothy came to us at 88, and Mark said, come over here, got to hear this, and she's talking like she's got new energy. She's cleaning the house. Cooking cookies. cookies yeah. yeah. She's <laughs> like a whole day. Yeah. <laughs> and all that. now she's, and it is, after she hadn't bothered the Lord, in her words, because she thought at age 13 she committed never to bother the Lord again. Mark's like, after 75 years here, I think God would be glorified if you bothered him with this, mm. you know, to come to him. And, and it's a whole new, um, Caitlin, the week after she came to love Christ, I was talking to her, and she's like, hey, the anxiety's gone. It's like, what's the difference about you now, Kaylin? And she couldn't stop talking about it. And it is, the, it is the best. It is the best thing we have seen at school. And this isn't so much part of our church, but kids come to love. No, they're just not the same. True conversion is a whole different. And when you see it, I think as an old guy, I just think, oh, there, this is what life is all about. Seeing folks come to love and know Christ. And, and uh, so that's been a really great thing at, at church to see. Like you say, Grant, whether it was Jose, the, the time Jose came to love and know the Lord, what a, just a glorious thing. And um, that's the best. No, that's, that's so good. I don't want to move on, but we've got to keep going. That is, that is really good. <clears throat> number five, uh, Greg, can you read number five for us? Yeah, biblical understanding of evangelism. The way we evangelize speaks volumes about how we understand conversion and further what we understand about the good news. If we believe that people are essentially good and are seeking Jesus, we evangelize using half-truths and tend to elicit false conversions. When we present a watered-down gospel, we end up with a watered-down church. We need to be faithful to present the full gospel, the good news with the bad, and leave the results mm. to God. Greg, could you comment on, on the watered-down watered gospel approach? <laughs> um, well, you guys have already kind of hit on it a little bit. And I mean, I know your dad didn't preach that, but you, know, you talk about praying the sinner's prayer. That is very... And, and I, I'm not, we're not saying sinners shouldn't pray to God. Like, so don't, don't hear that. Like anytime a sinner, you know, we're awakened and we say, God, save me. Like that's the sinner's prayer. Um, but as it's typically practiced in a lot of churches, it gives this false sense of, of assurance about your salvation. Well, you know, do you, can you acknowledge mentally that you're a sinner? Well, yes. Well, Jesus died for sinners. You know, do you want to go to hell when you die? Well, no. Um, well then guess what? Just believe, believe in Jesus. Okay. I believe in him. Okay. Well, welcome to the church. You're a Christian, you know, and it's like, I mean, do, are people saved through that? Yes. I was saved through that kind of like scare me out of hell message. You know, well, if you were to die right now, um, that kind of thing. I mean, I believe I was genuinely converted, but that doesn't mean that I endorse the methodology mm. when we don't call people. And this, and this is, this is more so today. I'm seeing this more and more. Um, you know, it talks about, um, 
It's you know the understanding of the gospel. It's not just for a healthier self-image or to make you feel better about yourself. So much of what people are being called to isn't really the gospel. It's well, you have anxiety. Um, well, Jesus. I mean, he does take our anxiety, but it's like, well, you you just need to live an anxiety-free life, and that's what Jesus will do for you. And it's like Jesus is useful. Um, to a lot of people, but we're not calling people to Jesus. Just, you know, hey, you can have a little bit better life if you trust him. The full gospel always tells us that we are sinners, hopelessly enslaved to our sin, hopelessly under the wrath of God left to ourselves, and that God in mercy, undeserved, provided a savior to, to remedy all of that if we will turn from our sin and cling wholly, wholeheartedly to him. Um, when we don't present that, we're not presenting the whole gospel. Um, and so church, a lot of churches, you, you see them, they might be big in attendance, but that doesn't mean they're deep in substance. Um, they're not getting that. They're not getting that. They, the gospel tells people that we're not good. Um, not that we are good and we just have a few problems. It, it says sin isn't just mistakes. Sin is, is a violation of God's will. Sin is cosmic treason. As R.C. Sproul said, sin is crossing God's law and saying, I want to be God instead of God. And we're all guilty of that. And we need to repent. We need to turn from that. I mean, that's evangelism is calling people to abandon hope in ourselves, abandon whatever worldview we have that's not lined up with scripture and cling to Jesus only. That's evangelism. And here's the thing. We preach that. That's what God promises to work through. That's what God says, I'm going to convert people, I'm going to save people, um, I'm going to make people new when that message is preached. That's the mechanism God has given for bringing about new birth, new life, conversion, faith is the message of the gospel. And so we have to preach all the truth about God, all the truth about us, all the truth about Jesus, and call for the necessary response to that, the appropriate one, according to Scripture. And if we do that... We've done all God has called us to do. I am not responsible. You are not responsible for converting anyone. We are responsible to present the good news and call for the appropriate response. But after that, it's, we trust God to work. Like We cannot force anyone to become a Christian. Mm-hmm. We cannot do it. And any methodology that says, well, if you just preach enough like this or you just have you know, a certain atmosphere like this, you're going to for sure get more conversions and more professions, that, that is already going down the wrong track because it's assuming that we can, in a sense, make more happen than God's going to do. And that is the worst place in the world to be because then we're acting like we know better than God. Yeah, Greg, I'm glad you emphasized that. That last line is big there. We need to be faithful to present the full gospel, the good news with the bad, and leave the results to God. And it, once again, expository teaching We'll, we'll do that. Romans starts with three chapters of really bad news of who we are. We need a Savior, chapter 4 and 5. Though once we come to know Christ, we're sanctified. There, that's through, as we teach the Bible, that's what, and I really love that part to leave the results to God. And that's very freeing, to be able to be free to go. You taught on uh, Mark where Paul knew that there were believers. Which city? And so they're going to go. Corinth. Corinth, yeah. So he's going to go out there and preach the gospel because he knows that there's the elector out there and he's going to get the good news to him. And that was his only job. God was going to save him. And so to leave that results to God is very freeing uh, in, that, in that way we can trust him. That's good. All right, let's flip to the back of the sheet uh, down to number eight now. So we already did six and seven. 
I'll read number eight. A concern for biblical discipleship and growth. We need to recover true discipleship, discipleship that causes Christians to live lives of increasing holiness. The emphasis on growth needs to be directed at holiness rather than membership. Uh, True discipleship producing strong, committed Christians will present a clear witness to the world. Now, Joe, you, you talk sometimes about discipleship. Why is discipleship such an important part of the Christian life? Yeah, it's, I mean, we're called to, we, Jesus calls us that, to do that um, in the Great Commission, mm. right? Go and make disciples. If we evangelize, we would add to the kingdom. When we disciple, there's multiplication. That's what we mm. want to do. We would want all of you, we want every, all 117 members in our church to go and to be disciple on others, and they will disciple others, and they will disciple others. Multiplication just mathematically is going to lead to so many more believers than just addition. And so, um, and, and that's maybe more logical than biblical, but right there, I think that's the way God has, has called us to do it. And, uh, and the joy is to uh, disciple. And, um, and there again, we're speaking of the chronic, uh, fantastic in the gift of evangelism. Oh, yeah. So we need that. We need the gift of evangelism, but we need those that are teachers too to disciple so that they can equip the saints to go do the work. Can I, can I speak on that a little bit and connect it to evangelism? You know, it talks about God gave the, the, the apostles, the prophets, the pastors, or the evangelists, the pastors te- and teachers. It doesn't say the disciples. Why does it say that? Because everyone is to be discipling. Mm-hmm. It's not like um, you, you can be an evangelist. And th- this is one of the biggest problems I have with a lot of evangelism is it simply gets, seeks to make this, get decisions. Mm-hmm. And if I've gotten, you know, however many decisions, I've done my job, you know, okay, great. They made a profession of faith in Christ. I might never see that person again. Um, and I don't really care if I see that person again because I can check their name in a book and say, hey, I got another person to make a decision um, Whereas evangelism Jesus. should be, I mean, it doesn't always work this way in an ideal world, yeah. but the idea is that we're, we, we evangelize someone and we bring them into a local church. They're converted yeah. and we bring them into membership, and that's discipleship. So mm-hmm. with all these stories we're mentioning, whether it's Josh Chronic being converted mm-hmm. or through Ian's, uh, Ian was working out with Josh Chronic. Josh Chronic's always working out when people are getting converted. <laughs> Even when he got converted, he was working out with Ian. Um, Ian, you remember those days? Yeah. yeah. So Ian and Josh Chronic are working out for a while. They end up rooming together. But in the middle of that, Ian is sharing scripture with Josh, and Josh is kind of like bored, doesn't really care about it. Suddenly, Josh is convicted. Josh is converted. Josh is reading his Bible. Suddenly, he's reading Philippians in the, on the couch in their living room, and he's like trying to memorize scripture. Josh is radically converted. Well, again, it's not just you convert them into the nothingness, into the ether. Mm-hmm. You convert them into a, ideally, into a body, into a yeah. local church. And then Josh joins our church. He gets poured into by all kinds of people around him. Suddenly, he becomes a, a, a very good godly and, and wise person, and he's pouring into all these younger guys. So that's multiplication, not just addition that's going mm-hmm. on there. And yeah, and we've talked about Josh a lot. Well, Ian's grandpa there, right? Ian is, the, <laughs> it's the, once again, it's Paul was to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.2. Two. Mm. Paul, disciple Timothy, Timothy, reliable men, reliable men to others. Mm-hmm. Paul's great-grandpa out of that spiritual lineage. And so you know, we need to quit talking about chronic and just start talking about Ian. <laughs> well, I, I think a simple way to look at discipleship, and I, I, I think I heard Mark Dever say this, I, I could be wrong, but it's basically one disciple helping another disciple follow Jesus more faithfully. There you go. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think the reason I, I brought it back to evangelism too is 
we need to connect evangelism and discipleship, not disconnect yeah, that's them. That's good. Evangelism is really the first step of discipleship. You bring somebody, you know, by God's grace, you help somebody come to Christ, and then you just keep teaching them about Jesus and what he said and what he taught and what's in the Bible. And so I, I think that is so important is because we, we need to understand discipleship starts with evangelism, and evangelism isn't done when a person becomes a Christian. Like yeah. the next step of evangelism is discipleship. Um, and we have to make that connection. If I win somebody to Jesus, I need to try to keep investing in them. And that's why you, when you talk, talked about chronic, leading people to Jesus, he doesn't stop. Mm-mm. He just keeps doing mm. what he was doing with them. It's just now they're believers. And so there's a whole new, a whole new things that come into that. But he didn't stop or change. He just kept teaching the Bible, kept you know, teaching about Jesus. That's what discipleship is. Can I just, I, yeah. I totally agree. Let me just give, we all know the Great Commission, but just listen to it. I know you know it well, but let me just read it again. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So let's see what discipleship looks like. It has two pieces. Baptizing them. That means conversion, right? Baptism is, you get converted and you get baptized. The first, baptism stands for conversion in that. We're not saved by baptism, but baptism stands for conversion. So number one, how do you, how do you disciple the nations? Baptizing them. So conversion in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, part two, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. Mm. And I'm going to be with you in that process. Mm-hmm. So conversion and discipleship is under the banner of discipling. Yep. <laughs> that, that's, these are two legs mm-hmm. uh, that, that we walk with here to, to make it go. And yeah. don't you think when we planted the church, it was a, we knew that we wanted to teach. We love to teach. We want to teach the word. And, but... It wasn't just to disciple, because through the teaching of the word, how many people have come to love and know Christ, which is, you know, evangelism. So, yeah, they definitely are hand in hand. I'm really glad you brought that out. And I would say, again, just, again, the joy of being part of a local church where people are hungry to learn and hungry to grow and watching people grow, like, over the course of time. Like, you've talked about, like, sanctification is almost as joyful as justification oh, happening yeah. in, in the life. I mean, I, we've mentioned Zach Petty many times, but Zach Petty, mm-hmm. he first came to the church. I mean, he was a genuine Christian, but, man, I mean, there, there was things that need to be <laughs> sanctified in him. And now, where he is now, he is so godly, oh, so he sanctified. Amazing. He, he'll do the most menial task in the church, joyfully, servant-hearted. But that's because sanctification has, has gone, I mean, yeah, he's printed. You the have same. these printouts because of Zach being here last night at the church, yeah. printing them out. I mean, Zach is serving all the time, along with Ian. I know Ian's going to be like, don't say that. But yeah, Ian, Ian being here today, helping us set up. I mean, Ian, just, we love they're, you. They're both, they're both our deacons at the church, Ian and Zach, and they, they serve us. I mean, I think everyone would be shocked at how much they do. Yeah. Ian's going to cut the live stream off if I keep talking, but uh, Ian's going to hit mute on the, on the microphone. He's not in his head at <laughs> yeah. you right now. Yeah. But the, the, the two of them are here all the time. They're working on stuff all the time that no one ever hears about or knows about. And it's, it's just, it, it's an amazing blessing to our church. Okay, let's go to number nine. Uh, the last one here, biblical church leadership. Until recent times, almost all Protestants agreed that in church government, there should be a plurality of elders, which means that there should be an office of elder and not merely one or more uh, pastors in positions of leadership. This is a biblical and practical model that has fallen out of favor in recent times. Quick word about this. Baptist churches used to have elders. <laughs> Back in the Stone Age, you know, a hundred years ago, Baptist churches had elders and deacons. It was this Amazing thing. But then in the last century, Baptist churches, and I mean, I'm picking on our own denomination here, but Baptist churches largely um, threw out the category of elder, and they just have one pastor who's just the lead guy, and then you have usually a a team of deacons who then basically function as elders, but they're called deacons, and it's very confusing. Why? Well, biblically, there's two categories. There's elders, and there are deacons. And uh, in the New Testament, you never see a single example 
of a church with one elder. Every single time it gets specific, Titus chapter 1, put elders, plural, in every city where there's a church. Uh, Acts 14, we appointed elders in every church. In in Acts 20, when the Ephesian elders come to meet with Paul, it sounds like a large group of godly men. So there is no exception to this. Every single time you hear about elders, it's not one pastor. It is a collection of elders in every local church, and I think that's Mm -hmm. really important. Well, it also comes out of like the Jewish synagogue practice too, because in order for the Jews to have a synagogue, they had to have at least 10 men, right? Mm -hmm. At least mm. 10 men, I, just, I might be off on the numbers, I think that's right. but um, in order to constitute a synagogue. And so a plurality of leadership in one assembly was not a new thing that the church was starting. Like it wasn't some new concept or anything like that. And so to go to a single pastor model is actually a departure from what God's people have known. I mean, um, even in the Old Testament, I mean, you had a king, but you think about the priesthood, you had more than one priest. You had, so it's like, um, it's a departure from, from what God has clearly revealed and his people have, have just known and experienced. And the other thing, too, is like we have to be careful. Like you can, there, there's obviously a lot we can learn from the business world. You know, there's practices, tips, and communication. Like there's a lot of good there. But a lot of churches have, have adopted the, the structure of business leadership. You've got a CEO and the board of directors. Like that's most churches. You've got the head pastor and the board of directors, which is the deacons. But here's the thing. The office of deacon is never a leadership position in the church. It's a servant position. Deacons are not to have authority. The elders are. Most churches kind of blend those two, I think. Um, the, uh, deacons also serve as elders, even though they're not called that. But we don't want to adopt a model that's in the world. We want to follow the model that Scripture gives, which is a plurality of elders. And when you keep those offices distinct, I think, one, you know, like in Acts uh, 6, you know, those who are truly elders can, can focus on leadership, preaching, teaching, prayer. And those who are deacons are actually freed to be deacons. Deacons are not supposed to be burdened with the leadership. Like they're, they're supposed to be free to serve in the church and to meet the needs that are there to be met, physical needs and, and various things like that, which our two guys do so well. Um, but if we keep the right distinctions and, and you know, separate those two offices, uh, I think we free both, both positions to be what they're supposed to be. A, a word, uh, you're about to, can I put you on the spot, Jerry? Hey, well, I don't know for sure. I got to hear first what you're asking. <laughs> no, go ahead, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, uh, with elders, we've talked about the blessing of having plurality of elders. Oh, can you man. say a word about why it's the wisdom of God to have more than one? Yeah, I don't know if I can say anything about that, but I can say <laughs> that when we were getting ready to plant a church, I, consulting with people to say, and I, I talked to a guy that had planted a church, and he just said, you know what, you're just not going to be able to find elders. He said, you're just, we, and he had struggled. He had had two in his church, him and another guy. That guy failed in a, in a huge way. He had been this single elder for a long time. He said, I just don't think you're going to be able to. And so what a, I'm so thankful for Greg and Scott and Mark and Alan before that in just having Three other guys. Oh, oh I'm man. so grateful. And I, I think all of us would say. Absolutely. And just the different sort of giftedness. No wonder the Lord called us to do it like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just so, uh, so amazing. I forget your question. No, that's exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> that, yeah, how, how it benefits each other. Because each of us have different... Uh, inclinations, different instincts, different things we aim at or see more clearly, and that balances each other out. It's, it's such a wonderful thing to have multiple eyes looking at the same situation rather than just one person with blind spots trying to run the thing. Yep, and sometimes I just think about this as if someone will, there will be a need, and it's like, man, we got to talk to Greg. 
they have got to see Greg on this one because Greg's the most gifted in that area, or or Scott or Mark. And so it's not it's it's really really a blessing to be able to. And and I just have to you know publicly say I am so grateful for these three guys. It is uh, absolutely be a nightmare to do uh, a church as a like you said the model of a CEO where they're just everybody else. I would. That seems terrifying. No, I know. All well, right. We are equally grateful for you, Jerry. I mean, he always turns the table. <laughs> yeah, we got to turn no. it back. Yeah. Jerry, I mean, <laughs> yeah. We are very grateful for Jerry. My goodness. All right. Uh, the statement of faith. This is the last handout that you have. Statement of faith. And we're obviously not going to be able to cover everything in this in any sort of detail. Uh, a quick word here about this. Um, there are, there are obviously doctrines that everyone who joins our church needs to believe. Um, there are very basic doctrines. Um, let's, Scott, can you read the basic beliefs, uh, starting with at the bottom of the first page of the Statement of Faith? It says, we believe. Do you all see that at the bottom of the page? We believe. Scott, can you start at that sure. and read through? This is what all members of our church must believe. Statement of basic beliefs. The gospel is the hope of the world. As we read the scriptures, we see the overarching themes of God's providence, power, and provision to reconcile mankind and the created world to himself through the person and work of Jesus Christ. In light of this, we aim to be explicitly gospel-centered in all that we preach, teach, and practice. We believe the scriptures are true, authoritative, and sufficient. And we believe there is only one true God, creator of heaven and earth, who eternally exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe all things exist for the glory of God. We believe all humanity, Christ excluded, is sinful by both birth and action. We believe the deserved penalty for sin is physical and spiritual death. We believe Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, was born of a virgin, and is both fully God and fully human. We believe Jesus Christ died as the sacrificial substitute to pay the penalty for sin. We believe Jesus Christ physically rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and will one day physically return. We believe there will be a future physical resurrection of the dead. Only those who turn from sin and to Jesus in faith and repentance will be raised to eternal reward. Those who do not turn from sin and to Jesus will be raised to eternal punishment. We believe only through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ and repentance from sin can can one be reconciled to God and experience true life and joy. Keep going. Let's stop there. So that, that's something that all members must affirm. All those are basic, uh, we call those bullseye doctrines, right? If you've got a dartboard, these are in the center circle. These are non-negotiable things. If someone rejects the virgin birth or the humanity of Jesus or the Trinity, they can't be a member of our church because they've got to affirm those core doctrines. Some of these next ones are called theological distinctives, the next five things listed here. And someone might not agree with us on, say, God's sovereignty and salvation. That doesn't mean they can't join our church. What it means is, we're just letting you know what we're going to teach. We are going to teach God's sovereignty and salvation. You don't have to believe that personally uh, to be a member of our church, but you just need to be aware of the fact that it's going to be taught. Same thing for like, um, take the, the roles of men and women. Uh, again, that's something we think is very important, and we're definitely going to teach complementarian theology, but um, it's not an essential doctrine for salvation. So let's, let's begin walking through these. Uh, we touched on the centrality of the gospel in the believer's daily life. Let's, let's not talk about that one right now. We've already talked about that. Let's go to number two. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Jerry, you did not b- grow up believing in the total sovereignty of God. Can oh, you say boy. a word about that? Yeah, I don't know how I missed that, like <laughs> 93% of the Scripture somehow in the first 24 years of life. But, you know, I feel like divine sovereignty, we've talked about this in class all week. We're in Romans 9. Um, 
and, and divine sovereignty. What a glorious doctrine. Man's responsibility. They don't, neither of them, to, to uh, hold the man's responsibility does not at all limit uh, or what we believe about God's sovereignty or the other way around. Absolute back-to-back in verses, back-to-back in chapters, back-to-back. Paul, the Lord, gives us uh, scripture that just um, holds the boat to both. So we need to believe, we, I, I, I would say this, I've said this, that uh, we will never, ever get enough of teaching and believing and um, stressing God's sovereignty. We will never, ever trust God enough that he will do what he says to do. And we will also never be able to stress enough human responsibility. They are, they are equally taught in Scripture that one doesn't uh, negate. Negate the other. other. That's the right word. Just let me throw a couple verses that you probably know already, just to to give a sample of what we mean here. So Genesis 50, verse 20. Remember this, Joseph talking to his brothers who betrayed him? This verse puts the two together as well as any verse in the Bible. He says, as for you, the brothers who were evil, as for you, you meant evil against me. That's human accountability. They are responsible for their evil deeds. They, they made a real decision to sin against Joseph and sell him into slavery, and what they did was wrong, and they are accountable for what they did wrong. As for you, you meant it for evil, but God, same Hebrew word, meant it for good, to bring about the saving of many lives, as you see today. Now, you can't say it better than that. So, the, Joseph being sold into slavery was an evil and wicked deed chosen truly of the, uh, from the will of his, their brothers. They weren't manipulated into doing it. They chose of their own choice to do this, and it was wrong, and they were accountable. At the same time, was God sovereignly planning? Did God mean for, this, for that to happen too for a good purpose? Yes. One more example, Jesus being crucified. Mm. Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles who killed him, the Roman soldiers, and the peoples of Israel crucify, crucify him. They did the worst crime that it was ever committed in the history of the world, all four of those groups. And yet Acts 4, 27 and 28 says, um, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel did whatever God's hand and God's plan predestined to take place. What in the world? It was the worst sin that ever happened. And God predestined that event. God was not the sinner. He's not the author of sin. God was not stained by evil. But God was so sovereign over that moment of Jesus' death that the agents involved were personally responsible for true evil. And yet God planned the crucifixion and God is unstained by evil. Those are the two truths. God is, God is sovereign, man is responsible, and they're taught side by side, in the, sometimes in the same verse. Yeah, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you to yeah, will you and go. to work for his good purpose. Yeah, and if it was just that first part, it'd be fear and trembling, right? You would be like, oh, no, this is all up to me, but it's not. And so, but both are equally taught in Scripture, uh, equally powerfully. We can't uh, take our foot off the accelerator either one of those. So just one more word on this, Jerry. Uh, so just, just to be really direct, and we'll, we'll talk about this summer, we're going to do a Sunday school series in, the, in June and July on this very issue. Remember, we're going to do the, 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 uh, that series on conversion and God's sovereignty. I can't but, wait. But That's even great. like really controversial stuff like unconditional election. We, we believe, what, what does that mean, Jerry? Yeah, well, it's, it's, that election was not based on God looking down the corridors of time and seeing that we were going to be quite something. Right? It wasn't that, oh, wow, they're going to be a good one. I had someone say that in class this week. I bet you he saw ahead of time that we were going to be pretty good. And, and so I was like, I'm going to pick him because he's going to be amazing. Or, or that, see future faith of a, of a person. That's exactly right. It was before the beginning of time. 
God foreknew, that God predestined. It was God who made us alive. It wasn't due to um, Romans 9, we're there now with, with Jacob and Esau. It was before he saw that they had done anything good or bad, right? It wasn't that, that Jacob was going to be. In fact, Jacob was quite a scoundrel. And yet, God chose him, younger, not the older, that God's purpose in election might stand a lot, 100,000 questions we have about that that can't all be explained. But we believe that, that, that God's going to do that, and it's not conditional on us. Um, and we can be thankful because Romans 1 through 3 would teach that if it was about us, then we don't see God, we're not good, we're not righteous, there's no way we come to Christ. Just to boil that down, so instead of it saying God looked into the future and he saw that we one day of our own free choice would believe and therefore he chose us, that's what, quote, Arminian theology would say, we would say it's actually the opposite. We would say God looks into the future and sees us dead in sin, he chooses us so that we will believe. Mm -hmm. He doesn't choose us because we're going to believe. Our, Our believing is not the foundation of his choosing of us. His choosing of us is the foundation of our believing. Yeah, can you tell us about Acts 13, 48? Because that, that's been really a, an incredible verse on that. Yeah, when Paul preaches the gospel, it says, as many as were appointed to eternal life, by God, obviously, as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. So do you see? God appointing them was the cause of the believing. It wasn't the believing that was the cause of God choosing. Does that make sense? So that's Acts 13, 48. I think we did a whole sermon on that back in Acts, on just that verse. Yeah, we should have. That's just such an incredible thing because I think because our part of it is the believing, it seems like that's what got me. Like, why are you going to heaven? It's because I believe in Christ. Well, why am I really going to heaven? It's because God made me alive so that I could believe in Christ. It'd be a, a bit more accurate. Okay, complementarian theology. Uh, number three here on this list, the complementary roles of men and women. Scott, why don't you start, no, and then I want to hear from Greg. I think Greg needs to start. Okay, Greg will start, and then we'll hear yeah. from Scott. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to read this first yeah, and yeah, kind of yeah. set the foundation for it, and then we'll, we'll talk. So we'll flip um, to the next page here. Um, okay, complementary role of men and women. Men and women are absolutely equal in essence, dignity, and value, but are different by divine design. As part of God's good created order, men and women are to have different yet complementary roles and responsibilities in the home and church, especially as it comes to teaching and authority. These role distinctions are God's grace to man and woman and are to be protected, preserved, and practiced for His glory and our joy. Wow. Um, There used to be, 25 years ago, we'll say 30 years ago in the church, this, this was not very controversial I mean, there were groups that were pushing, you know, fem- more feminist agendas and stuff like that. But th- this was not that controversial um, because this is what the church had always practiced and recognized as the outflow of the teaching of Scripture. Um, it's, it's really controversial today, to, uh, which is a very egalitarian society. Egalitarian meaning everything's equal, no differences. No um, difference in role at no all. No difference in role, um, even identity now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no difference in role. Like if, if, you're, if you're equal, that means equal in every conceivable way. Um, and people today have a very hard time, um, one, acknowledging the difference that God himself made between men and women. Again, both men and women equally bear the image of God. Men don't bear more the image of God than women. Women don't bear more the image of God than men. We, individually, we bear that 100% image of God 
uh, and all the value, worth, and dignity that comes with that. But God created different roles. I mean, we can look biologically, God made us different. Um, I mean, that, that's, that's clear in the text of Scripture, too. Like, we're not just depending on science for that. God clearly made man and woman, both in his image, but physically different. Um, and part of that is so that man could, mankind could reproduce and have children and, you know, and all of that. But I mean, again, this goes back to the fact God created men to have the authority in the home and in the church. Um, God created Eve to be a helper fit for Adam, meaning, yes, Adam's the one who's in the lead, but there are things that, that Eve is going to be able to do that Adam can't do, one, you know, bear, you know conceive and bear children. Um, but there's going to be different aspects to, to a home and a family. Um, men are called to do certain things, women, others, and there's a lot where there's kind of overlap um, and stuff like that. Uh, authority and submission does not mean that women are doormats, that they don't think, um, they don't, you know, have a say in their home. I think it means husbands ultimately, uh, you know, are bear the burden of, of leaderships and decisions. But I mean, I know I, I, I need my wife's counsel and wisdom and advice. She is Absolutely. a very clear-headed uh, sober-minded thinker on things and uh, oftentimes better than I am. I mean, I'm not afraid to admit that. Um, but And so authority and submission doesn't mean that women have nothing to contribute um, to things, but it does mean the, the burden of leadership falls on the man to direct the family, to direct the course, to take the initiative in the spiritual development um, of children. Again, if moms stay at home, guess who's going to be doing the bulk of that? The, the, the mom is. But husbands are to, you know, and fathers are to, you know, yeah, this is the direction we want to go. And together they go that direction. Um, just, add, add to that. Let me just, just to give a, a biblical background to that. With Adam and Eve, so Paul sees it as theologically significant that Adam was formed first and then Eve. Mm-hmm. He sees that as theologically significant for why he, he reserves the office of elder or pastor for men in 1 Timothy 2. But then Paul, Paul, I mean, Genesis, God also says, so Adam was formed first. Adam names Eve, Eve, and he also names Eve woman. He names her twice, but Eve does not aim, name Adam, which again shows leadership. Uh, next is God instructs Adam about the rules of the garden before Eve is created. And the assumption is that Adam passes that information on to Eve so that you see again leadership. Next, when the fall happens, Satan reverses it. Satan goes to Eve and makes her the leader rather than Adam, reversing the roles there. And Adam stands by passively and allows Eve to sin and then sins with her and fails miserably as a leader. But then Adam then blames his wife, which is terrible, and blames God, this woman you gave me. But then here's, here's what's amazing. When Adam and Eve sin, we can agree they both sinned, right? Crystal clear. They both ate of the fruit. They're both responsible. But here's the thing that blows my mind. God shows up in the garden. Remember in the cool of the day, he shows up. When God goes to meet with Adam and Eve, he does not say, Adam and Eve, where are y'all? And there is a Hebrew word for y'all. It's the plural, okay? He doesn't use y'all, okay, with the Georgia Southern. He doesn't say y'all. There's a Hebrew word for you, plural, which he uses in the text. But there, he, this is amazing. When Adam and Eve both sinned, and you could even argue Eve ate the fruit first, but God does not call them together. He says, Adam, where are you, singular? Why is that? Why doesn't he call them as a couple? Why does he not? He knocks on the front door, and he calls for the husband first. Why? Because Adam bears primary responsibility. 
Even, even if you could say, well, the, she gave me the fruit, doesn't matter, Adam. You bear primary responsibility as the man. And so God addresses Adam one-on-one first, man to man. You know, God is not man, but God to Adam. And then he addresses Eve second, and then the serpent third. That has theological significance to it. So again, this is not about the right of privilege for a man. It's about the burden of responsibility. It's not the right, it's not demanding your wife around like she's some sort of servant. No, it's not the, it's not the, it's not the right of, of privilege. It's the burden of responsibility. And for the wife, like you said, it's not a thoughtless, brainless, doormat submission. It is a creative, passionate, engaged, uh, joyful support and following of the husband's lead in the home. Romans 5, same thing. It's, it's Adam. He's the one that is uh, responsible. It's it's his, he's the one that's assigned that he was the first one who said. Original sin is tied to Adam. Eve is not Absolutely. mentioned in Romans 5. That's amazing. Eve that's is not amazing. even mentioned in Romans 5 because Adam bore primary responsibility yep. for the fall. And he was right there. He, he was passive when, uh, when he shouldn't have been. And uh, so it's his responsibility, his sin. Um, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let's look at verse 12. When we talk about leadership in the church, authority in the church, um, you know, our, our statement says, you know, different roles, complementary roles and responsibilities in the home and the church, especially as it comes to teaching and authority. Um, this is one of the clearest statements in the Bible. Um, and honestly, folks have to do gymnastics with the text in order to make it say what it's not saying. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, because Mark referenced what comes after this. Um, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or, ex- or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. Now, that's not meaning in every single situation women have to never talk. It's talking about when it comes to elders and teaching in the church over the whole church, um, only men are called and qualified by God to do that. Um, some try to take this to say, well, I don't permit a woman to exercise authoritative teaching. But again, they're, they're twisting this. There is a distinction. I was looking up. There's a distinction there, in, even in the Greek, between teaching and exercising authority. It's not, they're not meant to be brought strictly together, although they are related. It's not like authoritative teaching. He's talking about teaching and exercising authority. Which are the two okay. unique callings of the elder. Correct. Teaching, and if you look at 1 Timothy 5.17, right over one page. Let me just add to that, and I'll go back to Greg yeah. here. But 5.17, you see the two unique things of an elder. 5.17 of 1 Timothy let the elders, again, it's always in the plural, let the elders who rule well, that's authority, rule well, authority, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So uh, exercising authority and teaching are the two primary callings of an elder, and those are the two things Paul restricts women from doing, which is yeah. another way of saying that women should not be pastors. Uh, sorry, Greg, I interrupted what you were saying. No, that's fine. Um... Where is it at? It's in chapter 3. Look at verse 14. The reason why we say this is binding on the church and not just mm. reflective. Um, there's two, two, two cases, two reasons why this isn't just, oh, well, that's just Paul being a, a product of his times. Number one, he roots it, you know, in chapter 2, Adam formed first, then Eve. So there, there's an authority. There, there's a right natural authority for men to have because that's how God set it up. And then two, look at what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, and listen to this, Mm -hmm. you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. And so Paul's basically saying, look, this is how you ought to act when you get together. Everything he's talking about in 1 Timothy, 
the roles, the responsibilities, the, the structures of authority and all that, that is Paul saying, this is how you ought to do things. That's ought to, not, well, I think it's a good idea, but you don't really have to. An ought implies a moral responsibility to do it the way it's being said. Otherwise, we're going against the responsibility and we're actually in error for doing so. And one of the texts, we're not going to go to it, but for marriage, first, uh, excuse me, Ephesians 5, 22 to 32-ish. I don't know if I'm getting the verses right, but you, you know, the end of Ephesians 5 is a great text on the roles of men and women in marriage. Okay. Um, Can I just, yeah. one, one other quick thing, I just think this is so counterculture. I think the, at the end of the day, it comes to how dare the Bible say this? Are we going to come down, are we going to come humbly come underneath yeah. the Bible? Is the Bible, what does the Bible say? I'm going to believe it. Whatever it says, I want to have that humility to believe it. The story that I've told is R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, they were great friends, but they, they differed on like baptism and stuff. And R.C. Sproul just said, what he loved about MacArthur was, he said, Sproul said, if I could prove to MacArthur that infant baptism was biblical, he would believe it in a second. That's the idea, humility to the word. If the Bible is clear on it, no matter how counterculture it is, we want to submit to the Bible. I mean, just, and it, the Bible is so clear. It's just because the, the culture is putting so much pressure. So many people are caving, but the Bible is just so clear. And we want to come humbly to the word. Yeah. What, what's considered radical today is, is what was considered much more normal in other times. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, the next one on here is uh, believer's baptism by immersion. Won't say much about that, but we just, we're Baptists, so we believe that baptism should follow genuine conversion, uh, and we, do, we believe that the mode should be by immersion. You can look at the text on that there. I don't want to go long on that point. Uh, the relationship of God's glory to man's joy. Scott, would you say, I mean, no, this, no, you, you, say a word, you, you, say, you say a word about the, this is, for, this is something that John Piper made pretty well known, but say, this, is, this is your hobby horse. Oh my goodness. Just, we, we, I'll just make this very simple. But the idea is that when we are rejoicing in God, delighting in God, when we are satisfied in Him and trusting Him, it, it brings great glory to Him. When, if, if a friend of yours or someone you respect says to you, nothing makes me happier than to spend time with you, they're not honoring themselves. They're honoring you. Because whatever you delight in is drawing attention to whatever you enjoy. And so when we say to God, I've tried everything in this world and I'm miserable, you alone have satisfied me. It's not putting the spotlight on you. It's putting the spotlight on God. It's not selfish to pursue joy in God. The Bible commands it. Rejoice in the Lord, always. Delight yourself in the Lord. I mean, the the Bible commands us to rejoice in God. And so over and over and over again, sin is actually finding joy in anything other than God. You know what I mean? We we enjoy food to God's glory. But I'm saying if we make something an idol, we, we enjoy it apart from God, then we're actually glorifying that thing rather than God. So that's a fundamental thing that we, we're passionate about here. Anything else on that point? Okay, I did this to you last time, Greg, and it makes me laugh every time. The Trinity in I'm going to give Greg 60 seconds to explain the Trinity. All right, y'all ready? <laughs> this is going to be good. Greg. He can do it in 50. He can do it in 53. I love you, Mark. I yeah, appreciate yeah. you so much. Um, all right, I'm, I'm going to time it. I'm going to see if I can do this. I'm going to put my, my clock on, and we're going to see. Um, we're going we're gonna to have a... Uh, all right, 60 here. seconds for the Trinity. Um, okay, um, as the statement says, there's one God, infinite, eternal, almighty, perfect in holiness, truth, and love, yet this God exists and it reveals himself to us as three divine persons, um, meaning there is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is who God is. Um, it's a mystery that we cannot fully comprehend how there can be one divine nature, one God, and yet there are three divine persons who exist simultaneously within that one divine nature, sharing in it. Um, And it's not that the Father is a third God, the Son is a third God, the Spirit is a third God. Each is truly and fully God in and of himself, and yet there's only one God. 
Um, and we know that because John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. Uh, only God was in the beginning. So if there's somebody with God, this, this Word must be God too. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. So we Seven already start seconds. to see. I know. Well, you just, you just took them and you made me lose more because you did that. Um, but yeah, so um, yeah, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the same time. Um, the, the Father is the Father. He's not the Son or the Spirit. The Son is the Son, not the, and so on and so forth. And, and the point is, that's what God reveals to us in Scripture. It's a mystery we'll never fully wrap our heads around. I don't think any, any human being can because we are physical creatures and you cannot fit a spiritual being into physical categories to make sense of something that can't happen physically. Um, it just, it can't happen. God doesn't take on different roles. You know, one moment he's father, one moment he's son, one moment he's spirit. No, he's always father, always son, and always spirit. And the, the three persons, as we say, are always distinct. We never blur them together. We never confuse them. Um, but we accept that that is who God is, and it makes sense of our salvation. The Father, in a sense, authors the salvation. The Son accomplishes our salvation. The Spirit applies our salvation. Uh, we pray to the Father in Jesus' name. We also pray to Jesus, and we can legitimately pray to the Holy Spirit, but we have to make sure that we're, we understand who we're praying to when we pray. Okay, that's, there you go. No, that's great. And, that's and, two minutes. No, that's fantastic. And let, let me just say, since we're dealing with things that are distinctives, and this is not actually in the document, but let me just say this. You, you need to know this as you're joining. Um, this is not something that you have to agree with to join our church, but this is something that we do teach. We do certainly believe the Holy Spirit is still active and essential to the Christian life, but we are not what you call continuationists or what you might think of charismatics. We are cessationists in our understanding. That's highly controversial. There's godly people who disagree with this. I just want you to know what we're going to teach at our church. You just need to know this coming in. We, we do, what, what I mean by cessationist is we believe that the gift, the divine supernatural revelatory speech gifts no longer happen today. What I mean is the gift of prophecy, the gift of tongues, <laughs> and the gift of interpretation of tongues, as, law, as well as the gift of miracles. Let me clarify. I do believe God can still do miracles. I still believe he does. I believe we should pray for them, and God can still do that. But the, like, Benny Hinn-type gift of healing, I can go around and just heal whoever I touch, that Peter had and John and Paul had. We don't believe that the gift of healing is still functioning today in the church. The speech gifts, this is important. We understand prophecy and tongues. Okay, I don't want to get confusing here. I understand tongues to be a kind of prophecy, okay? Tongues is, a, is speaking a prophecy in another language. So it's an umbrella term is just prophecy. We believe that New Testament prophecy, like Old Testament prophecy, is speaking new words of revelation straight from heaven. In other words, it's Ezekiel saying, thus says the Lord. And he, he speaks a new word from God, almost like adding new Bible verses to the Bible, like divine, inspired, inerrant words from heaven. We do not believe that people do that anymore today. We believe that all we need for life and godliness is in this book, that the apostles and prophets have given us what they need, and that the gift of apostleship ceased with the death of John, and the gift of prophecy ceased around the same time, and that we no longer have infallible new words from heaven coming down to man because we have all we need in this book. So that's controversial, but just you need to know coming in that we don't teach continuation of those gifts, but the cessation of those gifts. All right, let me pray, and then the elders will probably just make two tables, and then we'll have two elders at each table, and we'll just take a moment to share our testimonies, and then we'll be, we'll be done for the day. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for a chance to spend time. I know we covered a lot in a, in a short time, but uh, Lord, thank you for the truths that we got to look at today. I, I pray that we would be stirred by these truths in your word, that we would not be ultimately 
uh, offended by what your word teaches. I pray we ultimately would submit ourselves to your word and love your word. Show us that following your word is what is best for all of us. And God, I pray that you would make us all more faithful in our walk with you than we've ever been. Uh, Give us a deep love for the Lord, a deep love for your word, and uh, a love for one another. And we pray that our time now at the tables would be edifying, and I pray this in Jesus' name.